0: Uh, The reading tonight is from Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, verses 15 to 40 on the handouts there. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully, so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol in the image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, Or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below and when you look up to the sky and see the sun the moon and the stars all the heavenly array do not be enticed into bowing down bowing down to them and worshiping things the lord your god has apportioned to all the nations under heaven but as for you the lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace out of Egypt, to be the people of his his inheritance, as you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. I will die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan. But you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day, that you will quickly perish from the land that you were crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him, if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he affirmed to them by oath. Ask now now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived, has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him there is no other. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth, he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words come out from the fire. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength, to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you, and to bring you into their land and give it to you for your inheritance as it is today acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below there is no other keep his decrees and commands which I'm giving you to you today so that it may go well so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time
1: thanks jordan Well, today we come to the end of Moses' first sermon in the book of Deuteronomy. Perhaps Israel was heaving a sigh of relief, as you might be doing in about half an hour or so. So far, Moses' sermon has reviewed the last 40 years of Israel's history. How God directed them to leave Horeb, also called Mount Sinai, to go in to take the land that he promised to give them. How they reached Kadesh Barnea, a journey of 11 days. How they sent spies in from there to the promised land. How the spies reported that the land was good. How Israel then refused to go up into the land because the spies also told them that the people in the land were stronger and taller than them, that the cities were large and fortified, in spite of the way that God had carried them through the wilderness as a father carries his son. They chose not to trust in the Lord their God. And so that generation forfeited the opportunity to go into the land that God had promised them. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Once that generation had died, God again directed them towards the promised land. This time around, they've had some initial success. As they've followed God's commands, God has delivered Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, into their hands. That's brought them to Beth Peor, which you can see on the map there at number 12. On the edge of the promised land, again... Moses has reminded Israel of all of this in the first part of this first sermon in Deuteronomy. And now as Moses looks to wrap up this sermon, he tells more of their story. And we see again that Israel's story really is God's story. That Israel's identity is shaped by who God is. By the covenant God made with them by how God has delivered them, led them, loved them, and he's fulfilling his promises to them. Moses sets before the people of Israel who God is and how God calls them to live as his people in the land he's giving them. I wonder if you've ever done one of those personality tests. There are lots of them to choose from. There's one called the DISC test, and this one kind of measures whether you are driven by dominance, by influence, by steadiness, by conscientiousness. There's one called the Enneagram test. This one leads to really intriguing categories like the achiever, or the individualist, or the investigator, kind of like that one, or the enthusiast. And then there's Myers-Briggs, which is the only one that I've ever done. This one tests where you sit on some polarities. Are you introverted or extroverted? Are you sensing or intuitive? Are you thinking or feeling? Judging or perceiving? You get a little four-letter acronym for this one, and I've completely forgotten what mine was. This is a bit of a cheeky question, but I wonder what would happen if God did one of those personality tests. How would he come up? What would we find out about who he is? It is a cheeky question, but today we'll see in Deuteronomy 4 something of who God is. We'll see that God is the speaking God, that he is the jealous God, that he is the merciful God, and that he is the only God. So firstly, God is the speaking God. In the first 15 verses of Deuteronomy 4, Moses looks back at another key moment in Israel's history. So I'm going to read for you from verse 10 to verse 14. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while it blazed with fire to the very heavens, with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets." And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. What happened at Horeb was a theophany, if you want the technical term. It's a visible manifestation of God to the people of Israel. It was incredibly dramatic. The mountain, the fire, deep darkness, black clouds. But what really mattered at Horeb wasn't that there had been this visible manifestation of God. What really mattered was that God spoke. There had been a verbal revelation of God's mind and his will. Sinai was a kind of cosmic audio visual experience, if you like, but it was the audio that mattered. Verse 12, the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sounds of words but saw no form there was only a voice it's a bit like when you meet someone new when you see them you can kind of take a guess at their age you look at the clothes they're wearing you might make some assumptions about who they are from how they look but it's not until they start talking to you that you can actually really get to know them israel was a people who heard god speak God made himself known to them so that they could know him. And God called them in Deuteronomy 4 to remember his words and to teach their children. In those first 14 verses, he calls them to hear his commands, to keep them, to follow them, to observe them carefully, to watch themselves closely, not to add to or subtract from what they've heard. It's hard to miss the point, isn't it? Of this with a purpose, so that they would go in and take possession of the land that God was giving them, so that they would learn to revere God as long as they lived in the land, so that the other nations would see their wisdom and understanding, so that they would live out their identity as his people. God has also spoken to us. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, like Moses, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. We've heard God speak in Jesus, Jesus who was the word made flesh. We've also heard God speak with a purpose so that anyone might know him, so that we may live as his people, trusting in him, thoroughly equipped for every good work in our lives. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, God is the speaking God. He spoke to Israel at Horeb. He spoke to the world in Jesus. He speaks to us in Scripture, in the Bible, His God breathed word. The question is are we listening to Him? Are you listening to Him? as well as being the speaking God God is the jealous God verse 24 the Lord your God is a consuming fire a jealous God this is a really jarring sentence all around isn't it jealousy isn't an attribute that we usually applaud and the idea of God being a consuming fire is incredibly confronting So what's this about? Let's follow the logic from verse 15 in our passage. There we read this. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape. It's not just that the audio was the important part of Israel's encounter with God at Horeb. The fact that God had no form there had a purpose, a specific purpose, that Israel wouldn't make an idol or an image of any shape. The words used here are exactly the same as the words used in the second commandment in Deuteronomy 5. So this is a kind of extended reflection on that commandment. There's a list of possible shapes that the idols might take in verses 16 to 19. And that list is given in an order that precisely reverses the order of creation in Genesis 1. Human beings, land animals, birds, fish, heavenly bodies. The point being made here is that idolatry turns upside down the whole created order. Worshiping images of created things puts them in the place of God himself. The created order is to be enjoyed as God's gift to all the nations, but it is not to be worshipped. In fact, worshipping idols, images of any shape, corrupts God's redemptive purpose for Israel that we see in verse 20. God took them out of the furnace of Egypt, out of slavery there, to be the people of his inheritance, to be his covenant people in verse 23. Making an idol strikes right at the heart of God's covenant with Israel. So fire at Sinai wasn't just spectacular cosmic pyrotechnics. The fire of Yahweh as a jealous God is the fire of his exclusive commitment to this people. A commitment that asks for their exclusive commitment in return. It's the fire of redeeming love that had brought them out of bondage and would tolerate no rival. Maybe this makes sense if we think about the promises that two people make to each other when they get married. Both the husband and the wife in the Anglican marriage service promise that they will forsake all others. They promise that they will be faithful to each other, that they will have an exclusive relationship with the other. When one member in a marriage commits adultery, when they have sex with another partner, we feel the pain of that, don't we? We understand why the wronged partner would feel jealous, should feel jealous. Their wife or husband is giving to someone else, what they should only give to their marriage partner. God's covenant with Israel is exclusive, like the marriage covenant. In fact, God is described several times in the Old Testament as Israel's husband. Your maker is your husband, Isaiah declares to God's people in Isaiah 54. So no wonder that the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God in verse 24. In a similar way, in Ephesians 5, Christ is pictured as the bridegroom of the church, his bride. Just like Israel, we are called to faithfulness to Jesus. Sometimes that's really hard. Sometimes we have experiences in our lives that make us question God, that make us wonder if he really loves us, if he's really on our side. Sometimes we look around and see other worldviews that seem to work pretty well. There are other ways to think about life and how to live it. But Jesus is a bridegroom who has laid down his life for us, for anyone who would trust in him. Jesus is a bridegroom who is always faithful to his promises, no matter what our experiences are. So if we're people who have put our trust in Jesus, are we faithful to him? Are you faithful to him? And what happens if we're not? What happens if Israel isn't? Moses now has a kind of thought experiment where he addresses that question. What happens if Israel isn't faithful to God in the promised land? Moses calls heaven and earth as his witnesses. And here's his question in verse 25. After you've had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, then what happens? Pause there for a moment. Think about a marriage where one partner has committed adultery. What happens? This isn't always the case, but what usually happens is the undoing of the relationship. What usually happens is a reversal. Divorce, two people who were previously married to each other become unmarried. What Moses pictures here is also a reversal. Just as we saw earlier that the people's idolatry would reverse the order of creation so now we see it would also mean a judgment from God that would reverse the covenant with Abraham. Verse 27 the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. God promised in his covenant with Abraham that his people would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. He promised Abraham that he would give his descendants the land of Canaan. When Moses is preaching this sermon, the people of Israel are numerous. The people of Israel are standing right on the edge of the promised land, ready to go in. But Moses' thought experiment shows that idolatry in the land will lead to them being scattered, no longer in possession of the land God promised them, and that only a few of them will survive. No longer would they be numerous as promised. And ironically, what Israel will find if they are unfaithful to God, is that the man-made gods of wood and stone that they've chosen to worship cannot deliver. They cannot see or hear or eat or smell, we hear in verse 28. It's devastating. The idols, the images that Israel has chosen to worship are impotent. They are powerless to help Israel once they have been scattered among the nations. The real tragedy is that this isn't just an academic thought experiment. Moses makes that clear in verse 30 where the if of verse 25 becomes when, when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you. We hear Jeremiah talking about this same tragedy. There in Jeremiah 3, really confrontingly, the Lord accuses faithless Israel of committing adultery on every high hill and under every spreading tree through her idolatry. In the same way, Judah was also unfaithful and committed adultery with idols of stone and wood. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord in Jeremiah 3, for I am your husband. But how can a faithless people return? God is not only the speaking God revealing his will and the jealous God desiring our exclusive devotion. He is also the merciful God. And so a faithless people can return to him. Look again with me at verse 29. But if from there, that is, scattered among the nations, no longer in the promised land, worshipping idols, having forsaken Yahweh, if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. The basis of Israel's future hope was the character of God. We see this in action in the life of the prophet Hosea. His life was an acted parable. In Hosea 3, we read this. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. It's confronting when we hear it in that context, isn't it? Hosea commanded by God to love his adulterous wife. What we learn is that God is faithful to his promises to Israel, even though they are unfaithful to him. Like a jilted husband who continues to love his wife, God loves his people. He is merciful when they seek him with all their heart and with all their soul, when they show wholehearted, repentant recommitment. God's relationship with his people is like one of those adulterous marriages where the wronged spouse holds out hope of reconciliation. But even if God is merciful, how will this faithless people ever seek him with all their heart? Moses gives hope later in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 30. God is the one who will change their hearts to enable them to do this. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. We see... All of this play out if we keep reading through the Old Testament. God does bring his people into the promised land we see in the book of Joshua. They thrive and flourish, they reach great heights under King David and King Solomon. But then it all starts falling apart. The staff team has been reading through two kings in our lunches together on Tuesdays. And to be honest, it's completely devastating so much idolatry, so much worship of other gods by Israel and by Judah. The hearts of God's people are so far from being faithful. So God scatters them, they're defeated by Assyria, they're taken into exile by Babylon. In his mercy, God eventually brings back a remnant from exile, but God's people never reaches the heights that they reached under King David and Solomon. It's only in Jesus that the promise of Deuteronomy 30 is finally fulfilled. It's only in Jesus that we see God's mercy fully. And we are no different to Israel in needing God's mercy. Have a listen to these verses from Titus chapter 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. This is true of every person. We have all failed to be faithful to God. We have all deserved his judgment. We all need saving. Verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Just like Israel, we need God to change our hearts through rebirth by the Holy Spirit. Just like Israel, we need to throw ourselves on God's mercy. We do that when we repent for the first time, for the first time putting our trust in Jesus. And we do that again and again and again as people who live as followers of Jesus. I was reading the other day about the civil war in the United States of America. It came to an end after the Confederate Army in the South was finally defeated. At the time, President Abraham Lincoln was asked how he would treat the rebellious Southerners. The question hinted at a desire that they might be treated severely, that they would be severely punished. And Lincoln replied, I will treat them as if they had never been away. That is how God in his mercy treats us when we return to him. So let's be encouraged. None of us can do anything so bad that we are beyond God's mercy. We have heard so far from Moses that God is the speaking God who reveals himself to us. He is the jealous and merciful God whose commitment to us never wavers, even though ours does to him. Moses now really ramps up the rhetoric as he lands this sermon. He lands by proposing a research project of cosmic scale. It encompasses the whole of human history, the whole of space. Such is Moses' confidence that the questions he asks will find no answer. Verse 32. Ask now about the former days long before your time from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask now from one end of the heavens to the other Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people ever heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? has any god ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings by signs and wonders by war by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the lord your god did for you in egypt before your very eyes no is the answer moses implies and then he drives home his conclusion You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. We might well ask a similar question to Moses. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people seen their God come near, being born as a baby, living on earth as a man, dying sacrificially on a cross, being raised to life again. Has any other God given his life in love for his enemies to reconcile them to himself? No. We hear echoes of Moses' conclusion in Peter's words about Jesus in Acts chapter 4. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we may be saved. What a challenging claim that there is only one God and we meet him in his Son, the Lord Jesus. It's an awkward claim in our multicultural, pluralistic world. Perhaps it's an offensive claim to some people. Maybe you feel embarrassed about this claim that Jesus is the only God. In a world of you-do-you, where we each exert our autonomy to write our own stories, it's a difficult claim to get around. But, says Moses, there is no other God. God is the speaking God, the jealous God, the merciful God, the only God. How then should we live before him? God calls for our undivided hearts, the same way he called for those of Israel as they stood on the edge of the promised land. Just like Israel, I think we struggle with that call. We struggle with idolatry because idolatry is an attack on God's exclusive rights to our trust and love. This is true of explicit idolatry, the worship of other gods or physical images. It's also true of what the New Testament identifies as implicit idolatry, worshipping something in the place of God. Some of us are really unlikely to be tempted by idols and images, like those that tempted Israel, physical objects made of wood or stone or other things. But this may be a temptation for some of us, especially if we have a religious or cultural background that involves that kind of idol. Hear God's call. There is no other God. Salvation is found only in Jesus. But idolatry is not just about physical idols. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Paul says in Colossians 3 and in Ephesians 5 that greed is idolatry. Are we guilty of worshiping idols instead of the only true and living God without realizing it? What other masters do we devote ourselves to? What other masters might be tempting us away from exclusive devotion to God? Do we trust God with our work, with our relationship status, with our future, with our family, our parents? Do we trust God with our finances or are we obsessively adding to our bank accounts and our super funds? Is our desire to buy a home, travel the world, live a comfortable life, the thing that rules our decision-making? Or have we entrusted those things to God? Do we love and value God above everything else? Or is our love for the things of this earth consuming our minds and hearts? God offers us what money and other idols never can. So let's pray for undivided hearts that obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you are the one true God. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us in Jesus, that in Jesus' sacrificial life and death, you offer us your love. You offer us life with you. God, thank you that you love us, with a faithful love. Please help us to love you in return with faithful love in all that we do. Amen.